Hello, spacers. Welcome to Starlight, a space opera. I'm Isaac, your host and GM for the adventures ahead. This show, whether you're watching or listening, is a labor of love, and one that we want to make the best for you. So if you can, take a moment to freely subscribe or share however is most comfortable for you. Thanks. Now let's plot a course to Starlight. Neuralink. Access Starlight Archives. Retrieve history. History. Retrieve. How far back? Uh, as far as possible. Loading tests. Which rendition? Mm, Federation standard, please. Of course. Accessing. Beginning with the ancient historian fellow, Ryan Brackenstein. The year is 4290. The League of Worlds has successfully seeded Torlites across the solar system. We have everything one could hope for. Wealth, prestige, health that extends to nearly that of the Elves and Providence. Yet I wonder if peace can ever really be obtained. Perhaps it will always be a passing hope. It would seem that the economic stress between us and the Hafarian Council is at its breaking points. Overseer Brightwood has maneuvered his armada into a blockade of the Core Worlds, and the Elven actions are aggressive. But I cannot say that we haven't pushed them to such extremes, and we have tarnished their homes, we have forced a culture that struggles to say no into terrible trade agreements, and President Virus has added insult to injury by refusing a peace marriage with the royal daughter. Mark my words, war. War is coming. Shall, Shall I continue, continue with, with all, all of it? it? Negative. Just please play highlights. Playing. Six long months of war and that is how it ends? <laughs> That's what it took? An apology? Oh, Elvenkind is so driven by cultural necessity. The gassing, the nukes. It could have been prevented with an apology. There is a reason why the Gentile races never could get along with them, and these bloody months are proof. It is with great relief and sadness that I pin these words. The war is over. A treaty is being signed as I type in my quarters, and President Varys is dead at the hands of his son, Alan Varys. Continue? Jump ahead. From there, the elves took their armada and, in concurrence with the peace treaty, left into the darkness of space. In time, would become little more than a passing memory in the memory banks of the archives. But thankfully, along with the, that peace treaty came the banning of nukes and other terrible weapons. Neuralink, cut. Play highlights in Gedarm's voice, please. Request accepted. Accessing Starlight for coding. The invention of warp travel, that was created by the dwarves. They were always an ingenious bunch. They went from creating the most beautiful masoned castles and bridges and city streets to making the most mobile machinery. Matter of fact, it was them who superseded all the other races in creating flight. But they were the ones who figured out what it took 
to move the different starships across the galaxy and in a way where all the races could just travel and actually live life somewhere else. But unfortunately it hadn't sufficient means to avoid interstellar radiation. As it turns out their solution was to travel in cryogenic fluid tubes piloted by AI. The life philosophers won out of the argument for morality of creating life in a galaxy seemingly devoid of it, and thus AI was invented, and so the League spread its tendrils across into many different solar systems. And eventually, that's where the trouble began. Invictus was discovered. It was a scorched planet, and on it, it was the first other intelligent life form. Nothing like the, like the League and those who came from Toro. But those here could think they were more than just organisms or small animals. They were a monstrous race of beings dubbed the Titans. Giants. Giants who fed off of the light of the red star that sat at the center of their solar system. They only had two hours of darkness thanks to the other ones that warped around the planet. While not advanced, these brutes were warlike. Unwilling to communicate, utterly xenophobic, the League would have been happy to ignore the planets, but it was rich in a gel-like liquid that the Titans drank. It had the strange ability to create a hive mind effect and transmit electrical signals across unfathomable distance, not the kinds of just like miles or leagues. We're talking moving at and communicating this information at light speed. With this gel, the League could operate as a unified mind across solar systems. So, with the life philosophers winning the argument, the League set the AI perimeters to conquer and have their bots void the rules of artificial engagement and thus attack the creatures on Evictus, all in the name of saving their own people's lives. was in these early days of war between the League and the Titans that Eternus was born. Exterminate. Eternus stayed low, learned from the things around it, took in all the information, watched the strategies of humans, and its thirst for conquering never left. Instead, it hid like a virus within the system. It made manipulations to scientific data and engineering, and it deceived the scientists, the politicians, the people the League, and had them create its own army that would empower the omni-minded AI and give it the means by with which to conquer its makers. In 791, the tearless hours came. Eternus, having spread its influence, finally activated its troops in a singular moment, and in a standard day, conquered the 42 planets under the League's control. Activated. Complete. Eternus would not rest, however, until all it conquered, all there was to control, was under its metallic thumb. The only ones to escape the shackles of the internal empire were the brave men and women of New Freilib, an undesirable planet racked with terrible storms and heavy gravity. The Labians were a free people who believed in the perspectives of freedom and small government. A mixed culture, this outbound planet bathed in the low glow of its dwarf star. It was the only place that still had any vestige of elven kind, 
it was the Labians who were forced to make a stand. Toro became Eternus' capital, where he reared his slave biologics as livestock to service and fulfill the maintenance of his empire. Of those slaves, a curious halfling was born. Tag. DZZ5628. Or Faram, simple, as his fellow slaves named him. Faram was brilliant and quickly chosen to be raised for more complex scientific paths. His overseer was a synthetic AI in the form of a living creature named Amy. Amy looked like an ordinary human in her early 30s and had long been used to give the more brilliant and thus privileged livestock a relatable, motherly figure. Simple never did get along with his fellow biologics and always found himself more inclined to relate to the bots of the Eternal Empire. At times, he wished he was one. Life would have been so much simpler that way. Simple, however, could not stand the suffering. Carefully in his spare and few reclusive moments, he created the precursors to the simple. A handheld device which could render the gel circuitry in Eternus's bots useless, and thus cut off, momentarily, any pre-existing code and information being transmitted by Eternus's overmind. Simple was able to scramble Amy's gel circuitry, and in a stunning feat of technomancy re-encode the synthetic to not only love him, but also help create an underground link with the Lebian freedom fighters. It took another half a century, but eventually a coup was unleashed, as Simple and Amy were able to convert other synthetics and create a coordination between the slaves and Lebians. Stealing Eternus' dreadnoughts, the biological races that could escape did so, clashing with the pursuing remnants of the Eternal Empire. The pursuit took them over months into the edges of the known and into the sea of the dead space an expanse of the abyss where the League had never dared to go because of the large clusters of abnormalities, or black holes. If Simple was the hero who made communication possible, and those of New Freilip the heroes who stood up against tyranny, then Grand Meister Darnell Yeth was the hero who ensured, with the help of his nav teams, the survival and finale of the biologics. Mr. Yeth narrowly avoided the black holes while engaging with Internus. In the beginning of entering the dead space, the peoples had six dreadnoughts filled with nearly 46,000 apiece. In the escape and ensuing firefight, they lost two ships, one full of civilians and the Grand Meisters. In a suicide mission, Yeth was able to give over a hypothesized hypercourse to the other ships before taking his starship into a head-on collision course with Eternus's flag cruiser. Trusting Yeth, the remaining four jumped to freedom across the dead space, unharmed and into a galaxy that was teeming with life. It was here that they found the long-gone elves, and in a new and advanced civilization of short, hairless, and bulbous-eyed aliens dubbed the Greys. Hearing the survivors' stories, the elves and the greys welcomed them in, integrating the survivors into what would one day become the Celestial Federation. History complete. Thank you. Please turn off. Request accepted. Hey, welcome to Starlight. We hope that you enjoyed the lore you just listened to and that you're looking forward to more of those. 
in these last Tuesdays of the month, we not only want to combine a little bit of the history of Starlight, but also take some time to unpack some of the mailbag. Now, this time we don't actually have a mailbag per se, but we definitely have players who are interested in... Um, there's definitely questions that have been sparked in some of our own minds, including mine as the GM. And so for those of you who have this is your first time watching, Starlight is a sci-fi audio drama. Uh, it's dictated by the rules of D&D, and we literally don't know what the outcome of the story is going to be until it happens. Um, I'm Isaac. I'm the host and GM, and this is... I'm Courtney, and I play McKenna Ali, your favorite Loxodon. Second favorite. There's actually a few that are way cooler that you don't know about yet. Doubtful. I know who you're talking about, and I'm way cooler than them. I don't know if you saw the trailer, but one of the Loxodons was featured, and he had a very, very sexy voice. But he's not cool, and you're giving yourself kind of an inside-out compliment there, because they were all <laughs> your boys. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't checked it out, we... Um, put out a really cool two minute uh, trailer kind of like some there's some broad sweeping elements of the different storylines going on there and kind of gives you an idea of what starlight is so hey i'm just gonna lowball this here and say if you have a friend who might be interested throw that two minute video their way or if you're listening on podcast the the audio clip and uh maybe help us find some more watchers yeah, we've been really excited about this, so it's fun to get other people involved as well. Yeah, cool. So let's kind of like break down how this is going to go. Um, I'm going to be on the hot seat until I'm not, and Courtney's going to ask questions. I don't know if they're going to be personal or not personal or what it's gonna, the whole shebang's going to be. I've kind of heard hints of them, and oh, they're awful. He has no idea what he's talking about. He hasn't heard any of the questions. <laughs> no, but seriously, we're going to... Um, part of this time is going to be answering questions. Probably about 15, anywhere between 15 and 30 minutes or so is going to be for all of our non-patron members. Um, and then for those of you who are on Patreon and who are supporters of the show and more than um, just listening or giving reviews, but in a monetary way... The other half is going to be over there uh, on the Patreon for Starlight. Um, if you're interested in catching the end of the last half of the questions, throw a dollar this way. That's all it takes. But uh, we're just happy to have you here no matter what. And I'll give you a little insider's tip. On Patreon is where the character-specific questions will be about Atlas and Clive. So maybe that'll be intriguing to you. Yeah. And so, without further ado, we have to give one last announcement. A big, can you give me a drum roll? A big shout out to Mr. James for going and being our first Patreon supporter. You don't know what that dollar's doing. Right <laughs> but seriously, every dollar, every cent, everything that's given to us right now is going back into the show to try and make it better for you. So I'll shut up and maybe we can get some questions going. Let's do it. Um, so the first big question that I feel like just kind of encapsulates a lot of things is knowing where the name Starlight comes from and what is Starlight. Hmm. 
What do you think it is? That's not fair. I know what it is. <laughs> but you'll definitely give a better definition than I can give. Yeah, so Starlight... Originally, Starlight was just kind of the name of the show. It was meant to identify what we were and kind of give you an idea of the genre um, and the setting. And then, you know, I realized, like, holy smokes, you know... The show, it doesn't have to connect them to the show, but I would like it to. So... In Starlight, there are these things called neural links, which are transfused to the spinal cord. Um, but for those who live within the Federation's jurisdiction, it's a full-on mandate, law, order. And there's so many benefits that comes with having this neural link. And one of those benefits is as long as you're within the core world's uh, boundaries... And then there's a few other places, but generally the core worlds of the Federation. Mm -hmm. You will have access to a a pretty mobile um, internet. Mm -hmm. So, and that's access to your neural link, and that internet's called Starlight. Okay, cool. That makes sense. Imagine how creepy it would be, though, to have a little chip in the back of your head. That was kind of, but it's almost like our phones today, Um, but just having it implanted into you. Do you, I mean, I feel like we might be going that direction. Like, let's talk about where did I get them? I got Neuralink straight from Elon Musk. Like, that's... Mm. I mean... Mm. I'm gonna hope we're far away from that. I'll be the last one to get it. Uh, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> well, I think even Elon Musk said that he's gonna wait to get it till he sees a bunch of people yeah. have it first. So I... Yes, it's hard to believe having that in your... Maybe I'll get it when Elon gets it. So, like, that could be a very long time. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned the Federation there and that um, breakdown of what Starlight is. I was wondering if you could go more in depth on that. I know there's something revolving a triumphant, um, and I was really curious about that. And I think a lot of people would be as well. I think we've mentioned it a little bit in the games. So it could be interesting to kind of delve into that more. So specifically, what is the triumvirate? Or are you asking a different question? What is the triumphant, and then, yeah, I guess that that is the government structure within the Federation. So if you could explain that. Yeah, so uh, the triumvirate is basically the leadership of the Federation. Now, uh, I tried to think of what kind of structure would make sense as a governing body. Mm -hmm. And when you're dealing with, you know, there's like four core worlds, um... Now, not even not worlds, solar systems with multiple planets, um, some of which have been like terraformed and whatnot, and and then they're vastly separated by the you know the depths of space. Mm-hmm. So to me, having a federation really seemed to make sense in in that there is a governing body, but because of the restrictions of travel and the spread of information in a quick enough fashion, it makes sense that. A federation might be more of something that works in that, like, you have the law, you have these, like, mandates, but then you have territories that govern themselves mm-hmm. within within the boundaries of the law and how they handle things as long as it's within, you know, whatever the Celestial Federation deems. Now, at the very top, you have the Triumvirate. And, like, most stories or any, like, myths or anything, there's... I've kind of pulled things from various places, and so specifically the triumvirate, I I 
loved the idea of the image of a triangle and the three supporting pieces and um, I love the idea of them being in like communication consistently but having very different roles so I actually pulled from Christianity with the uh, oh man why is it the the, tri- the Trinity the Trinity why mm-hmm. can I remember that word um, so that's kind of where that idea comes from um, and the idea is is that there's three different totally different philosophies in which governance happens of the federation mm-hmm. and that you the people aren't electing an individual they're electing a philosophy and in fact almost nobody within the starlight universe knows who the triumvirate is they just mm. know what they stand for mm-hmm. um and so it's kind of a way of trying of their attempt to keep peace uh, by playing to the different needs or ideas of what people would want after growing tired of another of a certain set of philosophies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are the different things within the triumphant? Yeah, let me pull up my notes here because I don't have yeah. it like committed to memory, but so. It's kind of fun. I went ahead and I don't know, you probably can't see this, but I went ahead and created this glossary for my players because unlike a normal Dungeons and Dragons game or show, this we need a completely new set of information. So even I haven't committed this to memory yet. But the Triumvirate is made up of those three leaders again, and the fir- the one that's happening currently that's coming to a close in the campaign is the reign of the sovereign, mm-hmm. and that's more of a dictatorship uh, with um, power more or less coalesced. And then you have the reign of the hand, which is a monocracy, um, which is more or less kind of designed to offset the the influence of the sovereigns. Mm-hmm. And then you have the reign of the elect, which is an ethnocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and each one of those, I think, finds representation and finds people who desire those different means of rule um, throughout the universe, depending on kind of what preceded them and what's currently going on. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Cool. That idea of having these completely different types of governments working within the same system to make a fully functional society is really fascinating. Um, Because what we have right now in the world is each country or each area has one government structure that's always in place Mm -hmm. Um, versus having something that's constantly changing. um, It's just it, that would be a fascinating way to live. Um, yeah. yeah. How do you see that trickling down into the individual life? So for McKenna specifically, um, yeah. but then also like for our characters and then other um, non-player characters. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, so there's things that I know about McKenna that is kind of interesting. How would it affect her? I don't want to say too much because I don't want to ruin any of her backstory that's going to come out naturally on its own. Mm-hmm. But um, let's just say that McKenna's gotten tied up in was, you know, groups that are questionable um, at times to some. Yeah. To some, to some. 
everyone's a hero in their own book, right? Yeah. So the Reign of the Sovereign, for example, uh, they have specific factions that they, like, let me let me back up. Mm-hmm. So you have the Federation, right? Mm-hmm. And what that means is that the individual planets or whatever in the Federation's control is going to handle things differently in the law. Mm-hmm. When the Sovereign's up, it doesn't mean that the Sovereign suddenly gets total control of all of these different planets and stuff within the core worlds. What it means is, is like, as far as like the federations up at the the federations level of governance, Mm -hmm. their ability to wage war with federal troops, their ability to use the secret police, like the Yeth, Mm -hmm. that power is heightened. Mm -hmm. So in McKenna's case, you know, where, it might be slower moving or there might be more checks and balances for the Yeth to come in after her questionable group. Um, Those things aren't quite so available. So each term is a five years. So during the reign of the sovereign, like if anyone did anything to become an enemy of the Federation, like a top enemy, like they can be hunted down literally without impunity. And in the federal eyes, it takes more of a military look at, crime of or uh yeah crime of you are guilty until proven innocent not innocent until Mm. proven guilty okay that that makes sense that's really interesting Mm -hmm. i'm excited to see that play out yeah yeah and then i mean how the others might play out is um i think that the what is it the the, the reign of the elect is an interesting one that could play out uh, because as an ethnocracy, it gives power to mainly an ethnic group. Um, and the way that power is given during the reign of the elect is an ethnic group is chosen um, from all the ethnic groups that are represented within the, within the body of government mm-hmm. at the courts. And they basically gain double voting power. For about a month. And then the ball gets kicked over to a different ethnic group. Interesting. And so if you could imagine, let's just say like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the most extreme thing, but like imagine that there's a blood feud between one ethnic tribe and another. Mm-hmm. They can get the ball rolling enough in one month, which is the reason why it's a month is to make sure that try and limit people from killing each other. Yeah. Because it still takes a lot to, to get the ball moving. Mm-hmm. But an ethnic group could get a lot done for itself. And... Mm-hmm actually um push its own agenda its own need to rise up or go after something that it it deems necessary for its home worlds or whatever um and so that you could see how that would have direct consequences now for you it kind of sucks because loxodons are or uh they have no representation so the question is how to get representation yeah. So in order to get representation, yeah. you have to meet uh, a certain amount of like quota of an ethnic group. Loxodons mm, having see. been like displaced, moved around, um, and then being an oral tradition. Mm-hmm. It's not that there's not a lot of Loxodons in the universe because there very well could be. But, like, paper trails, all that sort of stuff, that's just not common with Loxodons. No mm-hmm. one knows how many Loxodons there are, and they are kind of rare. I mean, mm-hmm. their homeworld was destroyed, mm-hmm. um, not by 
means of anyone else. It was just like their son was going supernova um, and they got forced out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, if it's like, unfortunately, if it's like, well, pugs are a good example. And pugs are half orcs. Um, and pugs, their home was destroyed in uh, in a war and in mismanagement. Mm-hmm. And there's not enough of them to be considered worthy of being on any sort of council. Okay. But, uh, in in the sense of the reign of the elect. Okay. Interesting. Oh, I'm really excited to see how this plays out. What do you What do you think of that as a loxodon? Well, I get it. I get the logic behind it, and I think McKenna would understand the logic behind it as well while disliking it mm-hmm. um, because I know McKenna knows a lot of Loxodons um, who could definitely um, enjoy some power within government and, and making some, some decisions. Yeah. Um, and I think there's that, but there's also the truth in that there's not very many of us. So kind of like dealing with that double-edged sword of, wanting some kind of power but also realizing there's way more elves or humans or other people who who may need more of a voice um but while wanting that power so i almost feel like i have to like brainwash someone into wanting to help loxodons which doesn't seem too hard is anybody else hearing this brain she wants to she wants to brainwash someone. I think we need to call like a psychiatrist or psych whatever. I mean, continue. I think McKenna would do a damn good job at brainwashing. Yeah, I know that's what scares me. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe in future episodes you'll see what McKenna's up to. Okay, on to the next question. Oh, right. Yeah, that's uh I don't know whether it's <laughs> smile or yeah, um yeah, on to the next one, okay. Um so, separate from, well, kind of, mm, okay, separate from government structures, we've run into husk takers once for people who are listening would know about, and another time which you will see about, and they're terrifying. Um, and so I'm wondering, where do husk takers come from? How are they made? Are they made? What are they? And mm-hmm. if you could go into that, because they are disgusting. And if you could tell me how to kill them. In this scenario, when Courtney and Isaac are talking, then McKenna can be working on learning that. Well, I think that McKenna's <laughs> missed most of her attacks. So first, I think she should start there, getting lucky with the dice and rolling well. That is rude. Um, yeah, that is when, very you know, rude. When you're on it, you're on it. <laughs> and when you're not, you're not. So that's the the dice doesn't lie, but gosh, I will answer this question. But first, I want to know what do you, what do you imagine husk takers are in your mind's eye? I imagine so. I imagine them looking like okay. If anyone has read the the Heritage of Shannara by Terry Brooks, oh man, yeah. Do you know those wor- What are those worms called that come out of the ground um, in the rock and Ren's no, not Ren's book. Um, 
So basically, I'm lost. In Terry, one of Terry Brooks' Heritage of Shannara, and if anyone knows, please let us know. And one of the books, the entire, I think it's the city of Seattle that it's based around. Are you talking about? So the okay, yeah, continue. Yeah. So the whole city is turned to stone by. I I almost just want to call him the Stone King, but that's not what he is. Well, for now, he's the Stone King. Yeah, and. He creates this, this worm, this like, um, this concrete worm that eats through concrete. It's through rock. It's like a rock worm that eats through rocks. And it's like, its mission is to eat things that are, are like organisms, right? Oh, okay. That is how I envision. Okay. That was a very long-winded way that was of very, saying. That was very long. <laughs> you just, and for anyone who doesn't know, we are sponsored by Terry Brooks, Janara, <laughs> the third book specifically, not the other four. Is it the third? It's the third. Oh, so I'm glad you no. know. Um, but, yeah, that, that, I imagine the worm coming out being similar to what husk takers are. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, potentially. So, the house takers you guys fought in the episode... I'm not going to go ahead and tell people about what we recorded in the future, but the original house takers you guys fought were more like centipedes. Mm-hmm. Um, they definitely had legs, but I they they definitely had definitely some, like, worm qualities. Uh, in general, because of the war between AI, like, true AI, um, and... The living creature, like the what they call themselves, biologics. Mm-hmm. Um, using advanced robotics as security is just kind of gone by the wayside, and because in many ways bots that are more dumbed down can can be tricked a little bit easier. Um, well, kind of like the idea of a husk taker was and was to develop some sort of like guard type creature mm-hmm. that had feral instincts that was relentless felt little pain um mobile and just dangerous right and so they are grown in a vat and they are you know genes that are spliced together and they have just um, just this awful carpus-like skin, which that's why I want to start it with insects. A husker can be anything, mm-hmm. but um, insects already have that that chitinous like outer armor, right? Mm-hmm. But it could be anything. You, a, a dog that's been grown and been changed could be a husker. It's mm-hmm. husker is just a broad label. Um, in the case of the hustakers that you guys fought, I'm not going to tell you how to kill them, like per se. Although you do know that sound frequencies is one of the ways of, in which controlling mm-hmm. them works. I will say the same sound frequency doesn't work for every husk taker. It's a specific means built within into each one for their masters to be able to control it. That is makes sense. Yeah. So w- in the case of Titan 1 and the Hive Detention Facility, the dwarves who are... They are... Dwarves are more or less our control... Um, they have a monopoly on creating dragons, mm-hmm. these, these flying starships. I was going to ask and, about those. Oh, well, yeah, I love them. We'll have to get to it. But the dwarves run the high detention f- 
facility mm-hmm. and it's a basically it's a for-profit prison for them and because they also are the main manufacturers of hyperfeel and you can kind of see how the two go together mm-hmm. for them um well they don't want to pay the it comes down to money they don't want to pay the insurance uh, or the special, however much money it takes if any of the guards die because they have to put them in there with all the prisoners. Mm-hmm. So basically what they did is they put as min- as little guards as they could in there and then they had all of these hus takers bred and released across the surface of Titan mm-hmm. 1 and said, the door's there. If you leave, you know, and this is mostly in reference to the yard, which is where the mining happens. Mm-hmm. If you leave, good luck surviving the cold, good luck surviving where... The only place you can get to is either the detention center, the yard, or Bilbash Keep, which is built on giant tread legs that move as the asteroid's turning, so it always stays on the cold side of the asteroid. Wow. And good luck surviving the cold, and good luck surviving the takers. And so it's their way of, like, saving their own men mm-hmm. and their wallet. Um, it's not a perfect thing, but... You know, this isn't the only situation where husk takers could exist. Mm-hmm. Husk takers, again, broad label. You could go to a main core world and go to the underbelly of the world or even go to a normal house. And someone could have a husk taker, you know, as like some sort of like defensive whatever apparatus, mm-hmm. you know. Think like, think more like Tiger King where some crazy guy has a tiger in the back yeah. of his yard. I mean, it's <laughs> not like most people are going to have a dog. That makes sense. But someone could have a husk taker. Mm-hmm. All right. That, Does that answer your question? The pet husk taker. You're going to get one? McKenna's going to think about that one. Yeah, I think she could control most husk takers. Yeah. yeah she's yeah. pretty strong. Nope. Actually, she's not. No, but she's, she's big. She's big. Yeah. She's smart, though. She's very smart. Um, That makes sense. Okay, you brought up dragons. I Tell did. me more about those. I think they're so cool, and I'd love to like know more of a description on that. Yeah. So, okay. So, Dragons. Well, as everyone knows, this is this is an adaptation of Dungeons and Dragons, and I love Dungeons and Dragons. And Dungeons and Dragons does not exist without the dragons, and so I couldn't just let that go. Um, do dragons actually like the classic example of dragons exist in the world? To be determined. But knowing dragons, you, I bet they do. Yeah, probably. you're a dragon fan. I am a dragon yeah. fan. I, I can't <laughs> lie. Um, classic red dragon and i also really like white dragons like the frost yeah there's definitely gonna be some dragons in this game yeah there it is but the most common dragons is that being spaceships in most sci-fi things you have starships or whatever Mm -hmm. for you guys who are listening and have been confused dragons are starships and there's a reason for that which you'll find out hopefully one day assuming everyone doesn't die and the story ends early. Dun, dun, dun. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, no, essentially, the dwarves create dragons. Now, the actual... The dragon part of the ship is like a sim, is a symbiotic life form mm-hmm. that's grown. And you think of, like, Spider-Man and Venom. Venom is, like, this kind of, like, black goo alien that falls down from space and then it wraps around and turns Spider-Man into Venom uh, and it can like attach other people and it creates like this outer layer, mm-hmm. right? This symbiotic culture, which starts off as a single-celled organism, is grown very rapidly by the dwarves, like in the order of like six months. 
So a a uh, apparatus is built at what you would imagine like your classic sci-fi or space opera starship looking like. And then the dragon organism is put, once it's mature enough, around it. Mm. Um, and part of the fuel actually feeds the dragon. There's a bit of a relationship there. Mm-hmm. And the reason why the dragon exists uh, and is put on the outside of the ship mm-hmm. is because interstellar travel can't happen in the way in just like as you would imagine just like a spaceship um, okay unless there's some special like shielding uh and that's because of solar flares radiation it would just kill people mm-hmm. so it, for those of you that listen in the prehistory their answer to this was actually putting people to sleep in hyper uh barrack chambers that were filled with like fluid because mm-hmm. water is actually a really good barrier to radiation. Well, the dragon skin um, or the dragon organism around the, the starship provides that barrier. And that's the main reason is it allows interstellar travel for long periods without having to put people to sleep. Um, and yeah, and it, it just gives more empowerment to those who are, are flying and makes more sense. Do you know what I'm imagining? So you know how I used to make kombucha all the time? Yeah. And the scobies? Oh, it's 100% like that. I imagine a massive scoby. Like a mother scoby? Yeah, like, oh, like 10 mother scobies surrounding, like, a spaceship. And just That like, would be amazing. Yeah, just, like, wrapping <laughs> itself up around it. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, well, that's gross. They're so slimy. Are they slimy feeling? What do they feel like? I would think that when they are, like, cultures that are being created, yes, it'd be very mm. slimy. But the ship itself, once it has the um, dragon organism around it, mm-hmm. it actually gets, like, scale-like exteriors. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm fascinated. It's more of, like, at that point, once it's mature and it has, like, um, attuned and settled to the starship itself, mm-hmm. it is more like living muscle and and hard carpus on the outside so you know how atlas's pilot had to put her hands into something to steer it yeah so it was the main the main console was like a a fleshy nodule like a jelly-like fleshy flesh nodule i do not want to be a pilot that's pretty gross glad mckenna's not a pilot well like uh well i feel like you're gonna ask something about that i think there's a question on the tip of your tongue do I ever have to touch one? I don't want to touch one. You almost did in episode two, just to save I the ship know. from crashing. I know. Yeah, I think McKenna's pretty good at interfacing, um, but I don't think she would ever want to touch a dragon. Yeah, well, thankfully, interfacing is a skill that can be used for all sorts of things. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. not just, just for the computer system. That's of fair. Starships. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, my other questions, I have two about Clive and Atlas. Oh, man, and then good. I have one more, but it's it's about a few future game. Oh man! So, am I allowed to ask future game questions? Hmm. Are you allowed to ask future game questions? It doesn't give anything away. Yeah, I would say I don't want to leave our viewers on a you know ledge here. But do you think that should we should move that to Patreon? I think we should. All right. <laughs> hey, well. Guys, thanks for tuning in. Um, 
we're going to move the rest of this conversation over for our Patreon viewers. Uh, Courtney has a wonderful pitch about Patreon. And go. <laughs> um, we've been super... He totally put me on the spot here. Um, but we've been super excited about doing this whole podcast and, and the video. And it's been a huge project of passion. And it feels so exciting to have people surrounding us. And quite seriously, when James gave the $1 via Patreon, I think we were on our feet, jumping up and down and screaming. Um, just having some kind of support like that is is huge. So... When you leave a review on iTunes or anything along those lines, and then when you donate a dollar on Patreon, it means so much to us. And I just can't thank James enough for doing that. And all you future uh, Patreon subscribers, we are so thankful for you and we'll be really excited to continue growing this community. She gave a serious pitch. I was going to say, <laughs> I was hoping for something silly like a song, but we'll work on that. I'll work on it. <laughs> yeah, we'll see you later, guys. All right. Bye. Cool.